Welcome to the show. Um, well, this man needs very, very little introduction. Uh, the former England captain, now familiar to one and all uh, on Sky Sports cricket coverage. Uh, welcome to 98, Mr. Michael Atherton. Thank you. Nice to, nice to be with you. Lots of things to talk about, but I'll just try and make it interesting. So let's just start off with the fairly obvious that England... That would help. Huh? <laughs> Making it interesting would help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, always interesting. Uh, England have just finished a, a tough tour of uh, India and Sri Lanka. I just wondered what you thought, Mike, what was your assessment of England ahead of the domestic season now? Um, I, I th the first thing, I, I just thought the cricket was really watchable throughout, um, which is one of the main things when, you, when you're watching on as a, a punter or a pundit or commentator, whatever, you want to see interesting cricket. And I thought it was interesting for all kinds of reasons. It didn't all, all go England's way, of course, but you know, some of the turning pitches that we saw in the India Test matches made it, you could hardly take your eyes off the action because the action was moving so quickly and wickets were tumbling. So it was really interesting. Same in Sri Lanka. thought the white ball stuff was excellent as well at the end of the series. So I remain a little bit in awe of the players continuing to put on really fascinating cricket despite the lack of crowds. I mean, I know that for two of the games in Ahmedabad, they had 60 or 70,000 people, but generally it was behind closed doors cricket. Uh, and as last summer in England, uh, when the cricket was excellent, despite the fact that there were no crowds, you know, they continued, the players continued um, to amaze me really with how well they're playing and, and the quality of cricket that they're producing with, with no audience in. So that would be the first thing. I mean, in terms of England, the test matches were a bit up and down, weren't they? Good against a less good Sri Lanka side, uh, but then very much second best against really the powerhouse of the game, India. I mean, India have got such strength in depth across all formats. Uh, they're going to be very hard to beat um, if they play anything like. When you look at the resources that they've got, both population-wise, the love of the game in the country, the money behind uh, Indian cricket, it makes them a really, really powerful uh, operation. So most of the World Cups now and Test Series, India are going to be one of the favoured sides. And I think we saw that strength come through against England over the three formats. Well, I think we saw it at the end of the Australia tour as well, didn't we, where they, they won that final Test match with what can be seen as a second eleven. Absolutely. They're missing so many key players, not least Kohli and Rahani did brilliantly um, stepping in as captain. But then, as you say, a number of young players who came to the fore, Rishabh Pant, who played brilliantly against England as well, Washington Sundar, Mohamed Siraj, all these guys who were really making their initial bows in Test cricket, not Pant because he'd been around a bit before, but it just showed the strength in depth that India enjoy to, to, to become an Indian cricketer now, given the numbers of people that play the game in that country and the strength of cricket around the system. You've really got to be a top-notch player. So anybody who gets an Indian cap these days, you can be sure is going to be a half-decent player. We were talking about this with NASA last week, and it intrigues me that, as you say, when you get your chance in Indian cricket, you've really, really got to take it. And we've seen several over this winter come on no fear and 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 really make a mark whereas or i think in english cricket when we get someone new come on we kind of almost like apologize for them and and, and say oh you've got to give them time you've got to blood them in and this that and the other what what is the difference between those two uh 
those two approaches? I, I think it's a reflection really on the competition within Indian cricket. You know, you've got a billion people in the country. Cricket is absolutely the number one game. It's, it's the equivalent of football here, uh, where anybody and anybody wants to become a, a cricketer in India. So that combination of the numbers, the popularity of the game, means that there's intense competition. And so, and, and therefore, when you do get your opportunity, so there are a couple of lads who came in in the white ball leg of the tour, um, Ishan Kishan, who got an opportunity before being injured. These guys know they've got to grab it because, A, there are brilliant players who they may just be replacing for a game or two, like Rohit Sharma or Virat Kohli, if he steps away for a game. So they know they've absolutely got to take the opportunity. And they also know that below them, are any number of young cricketers pushing hard to get opportunities. Um, so I think it's just an intensely competitive environment. And in a way, it's a little bit like Australian cricket was, I think, when I was playing in the, in the kind of early mid-90s, when Australia could have put out two or three test teams that would have challenged anybody. Their second string team would have been excellent, as would their third string team, because Sheffield Shield cricket at that stage was intensely competitive. Um, and I just think that's how Indian cricket is right now for all kinds of reasons, the resources that they have. And that then creates its own natural uh, competition uh, and naturally positive environment um, where the cream will just rise to the top. And I think it's not quite as competitive in England for obvious reasons, population, resources, whatever the strength of football, all, all the kind of reasons. Um, but it's very different in India, for sure. Those those new players breaking into the side seem to have broken in with so little fear as well. They've, they've broken in wanting to take their opportunity rather than afraid not to. Yeah, um, and I guess that must be a, just a reflection on their own character, but also a, refre a reflection on the competition within the system. Because as they rise to the top, they're facing that kind of competition at every level they get to. So even under 19 level, for example, Shubman Gill or Prithvi Shaw, whoever you're talking about, these guys have got to that stage under intense competition there. So they're kind of used to it as they then go up to the next stage in first class cricket or under 25 Indian team and then the A team. That level of competition is just there throughout. So they get very used to it. England pushed them close though I think am I right in saying we won the first test and then not so well after that we won the first ODI and then not so well after that and we won the first T20 and not so well after that so yeah England were, England were competitive for sure um, and they had their opportunities actually the frustration in the test match series was that they had opportunities even after that first win in Chennai, which was one of the great overseas wins. And then in the other games, they had opportunities. They won some good tosses. They had opportunities in the best conditions and they didn't quite, uh, didn't quite nail those opportunities. So it was a little bit frustrating from that point of view. Um, but they were competitive throughout. The white ball games were all really competitive in 50-over cricket and T20 cricket. Um, you know, one, one, the, the day-night test that finished quickly was not so much in the test series but other than that in general I thought England were competitive um, and it must be very difficult to um, to play any format of cricket when there's any doubt in your mind about the wicket well the wicket there was a lot of chat about the wicket and the pitches um, my own view is I quite like the variety in pitches I mean you wouldn't want a two-day game every time you see a test match but I quite like the fact that occasionally you will get an extreme surface that offers a challenge of a different kind to batsmen and bowlers. It's not 
even on a turning pitch, you've still got to be able to land the ball on a sixpence and take that kind of pressure and expectation that falls on the spinners. So I quite just like the variety of conditions. You go to Perth and you get a fast bouncy pitch. You go to Brisbane the same. You might come to Headingley and it seems around, swings around. You go to Chennai or Mumbai and it turns square. I mean, that's the beauty of the game. And if you have a long, successful career as an international cricketer, you know you will have come up against all these different kind of conditions and you will have had to prove yourself in a variety of conditions. And, and I think that's an entirely good thing. Do you have any tours that, that kind of bring back the same sort of memories where you had such Ex- I don't think we had as extreme uh, conditions as the one faced uh, in those couple of games in Ahmedabad. But I mean, it, bizarrely, uh, although I played over 100 test matches for England, in those days, we didn't go to the subcontinent very often. I only played one test in India out of 115, which is amazing statistic, really. We only toured India once in test matches for the entire length of my test career. But on that tour, we played in Chennai and we played in Mumbai and the pitches did spin. I don't think they spun quite as much as the Ahmedabad game, but they did spin. Um, And then you'd go to Perth um, in Western Australia. You know, we'd be standing 40 yards back for Devon Malcolm. It was so fast and bouncy. And that's the beauty of the game. That That is the absolute beauty of the game, that it throws up all these challenges and you have to try and overcome them. You mentioned um, about characteristics of of various pitches and grounds. Um, Perth, for example. Now, in your day, Perth was was long established as being a fast bowler's paradise with glassy pitches. In Australia, a lot's changed. Perth is a good example that they no longer even use that stadium. They built more of these sort of all-purpose venues. And it seems to be happening throughout the world. Old Trafford, your old ground, is doesn't look anything. In fact, they've even turned it 90 degrees um, I think Old Trafford looks the better for it, I must say. <laughs> I mean, there, you're right, there are very few grounds now where I stand on the middle, look round, and can imagine having played there, Old Trafford being a classic example, it completely turned the square around. The ground has been totally transformed since I played there, and I think it looks a much better ground for it. Um, you're right about Australia, they have a number of drop-in pitches, a number of places like Adelaide and, and Melbourne that are multi-sports use, you know, play Aussie rules in the winter and cricket in the summer. And as you rightly say, in Perth now, they've built the new multi-purpose stadium, although they still might use the WACA for some games. Um, and what you want to avoid really is a uniformity of pitches. So we played on one in the test match in Melbourne 2017 when Cookie from your part of the world got a, a massive double hundred and played brilliantly, but it was a very dull test match because it was just a bog-standard flat pitch that did nothing. And so that's what you want to avoid, really. It's, you might as well go and play on artificial surfaces if, if that's what you're going to get. What you want is, and what used to be the the great thing about travelling Australia, would you get a different surface for every game? Your, your career, for me, was highlighted by some really good confrontations and tussles, um, real lockings of horns now. Two that spring to mind, obviously, Alan Donald uh, in South Africa that time, um, and also uh, Glenn McGrath, and, and you mentioned earlier, Kirtley and Courtney out in the West Indies. Um, I was lucky enough to be out in Barbados uh, back in the 90s and was there to witness firsthand what you and Alex Stewart happened to put up with. These days, would you say there were equivalents of... Uh, the one that springs to mind to me recently is, is uh, Ben Stokes and Marlon Samuels, where there was that kind of needle. Um, is it still around or is it something that's missing um, a bit? It's hard to say. I, I mean, obviously, I'm not out in the middle. I mean, I sense that, you know, that 
that level of competitiveness is still there. If you look at Virat Kohli, for example, India's captain, he's very expressive. He's very competitive, <laughs> uh, wants to win every game. I think that shines through, actually, in the way that he plays. Um, in terms of the fast bowlers, I think the standard of fast bowling in test cricket over the last two or three years has been very strong, actually. I thought it went through a slight phase where it dipped, but the last two or three years, it's been very strong. Um, Australia, South Africa, West Indies have had a comeback with fast bowling. Uh, India, you know, as good a crop as fast bowlers as, as they've ever had. Um, so it's looked really competitive to me uh, from a distance. And yeah, I mean, I, I loved all that, really. I, I love the, the, the real uh, competition that you develop with a particular opponent and it has to develop over time. So like, you know, Alan Donald, we virtually, our careers coincided. South Africa got back into world cricket in 1992, uh, which is kind of the start of my test career. And we played against each other then until I retired in, in 2001. So I played a lot against each other and you develop a, a relationship or rapport, whatever you want to call it against the particular <laughs> bowler. And, you know, you do it over five tests, so you keep having those battles that crop up. And I, I thought that was fantastic, really. I loved playing against him. We always got on great off the field, you know, had a bit of a ding-donger on the field. <laughs> Nothing ever went too far, you know. Uh, people talk about sledging, but wasn't, you know, occasionally it would, like, develop out of the action, but there was never any deliberate um, intent to, to sledge or put people off their game from the start. So... I loved it. thought it was great. The West Indies never said a word. Curtly and Courtney just never said a word on the pitch. They just let their their bowling do the talking and they were pretty good at that. You mentioned Alan Donald. Is that right that he used to target you with with the bumper um, because you had difficulties ducking under it? Not really. I I mean, I had a bad back as I went through my career and later on struggled a bit. It was a bit stiff and immobile, but not in the early days. He basically bounced anybody who came to the crease. I mean, he was very fast. In his early days, probably actually just slightly before South Africa got back into world cricket, Alan came and played as an overseas player for Warwickshire. And he was unbelievably quick and a bit wild and woolly. And then he became a much more disciplined bowler as an international cricketer for South Africa. And he was still very quick, but maybe just not quite as quick as he had been in the early days for Warwickshire. Um, but he, along with Brett Lee and Shoei Bakhtar, uh, were probably the three fastest bowlers of my particular generation. I'm going to ask you something um, probably not everyone asks you about, but um, the Mutus are from Georgetown, Guyana. I, right. I was born here, um, but uh, you obviously are married to a, a Guyanese lady, and um, I've seen you write some really, really good articles about Guyana and Georgetown and what life is like. Um, I went there in 1983 when I was 16, uh, and it was under Forbes Burnham, where it was a Marxist cooperative, and that was soldiers on the streets and curfews and uh, and all that kind of stuff. Very very difficult for people, but I think that was kind of brushed aside when cricket teams came through on uh, on tour. But um, I think it's uh, and talking, well, we, we've still got family out there. Uh, things seem to be better these days, though, and it's uh, it's a bit of a different place, I gather. Well, a lot of Guyanese left around that time, as you'd probably be aware, um, because, as you say, it was a difficult uh, situation. The economy rather tanked and and a lot of Guyanese left. My wife's family stayed um, throughout that. And um, 
although my wife's father is no longer alive um you know so so there's not much she doesn't have much family there but still has the family home in georgetown um so we go back a little bit and she goes back more than i do um but i've always enjoyed going to georgetown as you know it's it's quite a chaotic place um but interesting and full of character um I mean, the ground there, they no longer use now the border, which is the old test ground. And they built a new stadium slightly outside of Georgetown. But the old ground, the border was so atmospheric, small, uh, ramshackle wooden stands all around. But when you got a crowd in, it was a fantastically vibrant atmosphere to watch cricket right in the heart of town. So, you know, working man and woman could just wander up after work to watch the cricket. Wonderful place to play. Um, yeah, and I enjoyed, still enjoy going to Georgetown. I haven't been there for probably two or three years now. Um, but as I say, my wife goes back a little bit more and still have the family home in Georgetown, yeah. Yeah, I think our family home is right near border. Because um, I seem to remember when we went, it was like a hop over the back fence and uh, through a couple of alleyways and, and there you were. But it's a, an interesting point about, now you played... Uh, through that era in the West Indies, but all of the ground seemed to benefit, you know, Barbados is another example, Zabina Park, um, Trinidad, of these kind of ramshackle grounds heaving to the rafters with very noisy locals, uh, the conch horns, the helpful comments to the fielders. Um, <laughs> I, I think what playing and watching cricket in the Caribbean is, is the greatest experience. It's a little different now because test matches are not followed as they once were, you still get fantastic crowds for one day and T20 cricket, um, but not for test matches so much. Although when England go and play, if they're playing in Barbados or Antigua, kind of one of the tourist destinations, there'll still be a big crowd, largely because of England supporters yeah. as much as anything. But as you say, back in the day, back in the 80s and 90s, when you'd play at these grounds, which were right in the heart of the city centre or town centres. Antigua is another one, the old recreational ground in Antigua, which is next to the prison, right in the heart of downtown St John's. Fantastic atmosphere, the best atmosphere to play in and watch cricket. And now, of course, they've got a new stadium, the Civilian Richard Stadium, which is a, a good stadium, but it's, it's out in the middle, you know, outside of town and not quite as atmospheric, uh, if I'm honest watching and playing cricket in those stadiums in the Caribbean, just fantastic. Some of my best memories would be playing test match cricket in the 90s in, in the West Indies. 35 in Antigua in 1994. My, my quick review of the records show me. I got, yeah, I got a few there, but I, I'm afraid <laughs> <laughs> we'd been in the field for about two days watching Brian Lara because that was the game that he got his uh, first world record, he got a second world record, of course, years later. But that 1994 game in Antigua, he got his 375, West Indies racked up 600. And then myself and Robin Smith got, got decent-sized hundreds and the game just petered out to a draw. And the, the irony, of course, is that that ground at St. John's, the recreational ground, the groundsman is Andy Roberts, or was Andy Roberts. You had this great fast bowler, one of the greatest that's ever played the game, producing a completely graveyard pitch <laughs> where bowlers couldn't, fast bowlers couldn't get anything out of it. And it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a run fest. So there was an iron there. Run fest or rum fest? <laughs> run fest, but not, not and a difficult one for bowlers, I tell you. And I think Andy was, 
Andy was making life hard for those who came after him. <laughs> well, I mean, through your career, um, so many highlights and milestones. Is there anything that sticks out for you as a special memory uh, or a special moment? Well, on that, on the tour of the Caribbean that you're talking about, we won a game in Barbados, having been bowled out for 46 in Trinidad when we should have won the Test match. We, we really should have won that game and then got rolled for 46 by Kirtley Ambrose. And then we won in Barbados, which was one of the great occasions, partly because of the atmosphere that I mentioned. And at that stage, it was probably half English, half West Indian crowd. And West Indies hadn't been beaten there for, since 1934, I think. So it was an incredible occasion. Uh, but lots of those highlights, uh, the, the lowlights all came against Australia. We never beat <laughs> Australia, never won the Ashes. Australia were far too strong for us in that era. But every other team, we managed to win a series against, albeit, you know, there were some plenty of low moments thrown in as well. How's it been commentating uh, this winter? We've had Bumble on and he was telling us about he sat there with his iPad up in uh, up in Lancashire. Uh, you, Nasser and Keezy have been at the Sky Studios, but... How have you handled not being in the stadium and just sort of, I'm assuming you're just looking at the same pictures that we're looking at. Um, yeah, I mean, it's incredible what you can do, as you would know, with um, technology these days. As you say, Bumble was in Manchester. Three or four of us were in West London. We'd have Dinesh Kartik or somebody else. He was great. Yeah, he was fantastic. So he was in Chennai and Mumbai. For the Sri Lanka series, we had Mahela Jayawardena and Kumar Sangakkara. They were out in Colombo. So I had a, all these people joining the broadcast from all corners of the world. And it went pretty seamlessly. So it's amazing what you can do. But as you say, you just don't quite get the same feel for it. You're not talking to the players to the same degree. You don't get a feel for the conditions. Certainly in the one-day games that we covered in the India series you know ball goes in the air you're not quite sure where the fielders are you can't tell how well they've hit it so you know it's not as good not as ideal but you know we're living in in those times where you just got to do what you can and given given the restrictions I thought it was a an amazing thing to put together the technology wise I'll leave others to comment on the quality (laughs) of commentary or whatever but just purely from a technical technological point of view to get it all together was fantastic unless you knew otherwise you you would just assume that the the commentators were seen in the stadium and the only time that i really noticed it was in one of the t20s or the odis where dear old nasa was commentating and said i i, I think he's got enough of that well no it would the other way around it would oh, sail right. 20 rows back into the stands <laughs> yeah he's just about got enough it's impossible <laughs> what you can tell is you get a sense of how well he's timed it and the sound off the bat but the ball flight is really hard to say and what i was doing was just waiting actually until it was clear whether it was going for six or, or trying to be out so i kind of pause but then you don't get the immediacy of the commentary but Is it true that Bumble was on a slight delay as well uh, because of the way he was set up? Well, the way we set it up was that when, if you were on with Bumble, who was obviously sitting in Manchester, as you said, we had Keyes' iPad there next to us with Bumble on FaceTime (laughs) and then the monitor and what we call a fruit machine, which gives all the information about, you know, uh, partnerships and over bold and all that kind of thing. So we had three screens 
to look at. And you, you need to be able to see Bumble, your co-commentator, because he, if you can't see him, you don't know when he's going to speak and you'd end up speaking over each other. So it was really important to have Bumble on FaceTime. But three screens there, it was a bit chaotic. Well, I thought Sky were fantastic. They have been fantastic this last 12 months, just in being innovative with um, the situation and the uh, things like the cricket show and the various masterclasses and things that you do have been really interesting. And I think a lot of it has worked really well. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it needs must. And one or two of the things that we've done, you know, the toss, for example, we thought, well, how do we do the toss? Because normally I or NAS or whoever would go out there to conduct the spin of the coin and ask the questions, but we weren't allowed to be anywhere near the players in the inner zone. So we devised, not me, but the gurus at Sky devised the mobile camera with a, with a microphone for the captains and out toddle this mobile camera being remotely controlled. So amazingly innovative, as you say, lots of very smart people there who know what they're doing. A long way from Tony Gregg and his car keys. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Before you go, um, we always like to uh, get a bit of music because we mix the show up with uh, cricket and what bit of chat and whatever else and a bit of music. And we, we like our guests to um, request something. Bumble chose a track by The Fall. NASA chose The Cranberries. I can't remember what Keezy... I think it was something like Dolly Parton or something like that that he, that he chose. <laughs> Have you got any thoughts about Well, I'll give you the one I've been last listening to, Cleopatra by the Lumineers. Um, I don't know whether that meets with your approval or not. I don't know it, I think. I'm going to have to look that one up. When you said, I thought you were going to say Cleopatra, the girl group from the 90s. No, 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 the Lumineers. (laughs) Just the last one I was listening to before I came on, so... (laughs) All right, well, we'll we'll play that one for you. But... uh, We'll let you get on, and uh, many, many thanks. It's been great fun. Make sure you tell NASA and Bumble that you've been on with us. Um, I will do. And, they were, they were thanks, excellent fun. And uh, Thanks for having me. Uh, absolute pleasure and an honour. Thanks a lot, uh, Mr Michael Atherton.